Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everyone. Great to see you. Um, I'm Andy, or one of them, anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, welcome to the RSA. Um, to all of you in the great room, fantastic to see you all here in person, to be back together. To all those uh, online, uh, welcome to you uh, as well. This is a really special event, a really special event with a fantastic lineup on a super topical and relevant question. In fact, I think devolution is without question one of the signature issues uh, of our time at this moment, economically, societally, uh, democratically. So I'm delighted we have such a fantastic, distinguished, and diverse panel, all of whom, I'm sure you have noticed, have very different surnames to me. Um, uh, Andy Burnham uh, to my left, uh, Mayor of Greater Manchester, as you all know, uh, re-elected uh, for a second term last May. Prior to that, uh, MP for Lee from 2001 in government, a whole range of ministerial positions at the Home Office, at Health, at the Treasury. To his left, Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands, of course. Uh, Andy, too, was elected uh, for a second term uh, last May, and before that, uh, Andy... Uh, had a long and distinguished career uh, in business at John Lewis, uh, latterly as managing director, uh, with a whole host of other high-profile development roles. And finally, to Andy's left, to Alison Alison Wolfe, Sir Roy Griffiths, Professor of Public Sector Management at King's College London, and sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. And in Alison's spare time, she advises the government on skills uh, policy. <laughs> We'll hear first uh, from the two mayors on their devolution hopes, both of them, of course, uh, blazing a trail in their respective uh, regions before Alison responds with a focus uh, on the skills part of that agenda. Uh, in particular, we'll then open out to questions from you in the room to you uh, online. If you're watching the live stream, you can post your questions in the YouTube uh, chat bar or on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag RSA uh, devolution. We'll aim to wrap up promptly at 7.15. Before turning to our speakers, let me just frame the discussion with one or two words about the macroeconomic position we find ourselves in just at the moment. And first, perhaps stating the obvious, uh, the UK desperately needs growth and it needs growth desperately in all of its regions and all of its nations. The cost of living crisis is squeezing growth pretty much to a standstill. That is unlikely to abate uh, any time soon, in my judgment. In response to that, of course, there's plenty of talk right now of the need for a new national economic plan in order to revitalise growth. And what I want to say to you tonight is, I don't think we need one. And that's not because we don't need one, but rather because I think there already is such a plan hiding in plain sight. And that plan is called Leveling Up, and it was set out several months ago uh, in a white paper. This is a plan for national renewal and growth. It's just unlike previous plans in the sense that it's built from the bottom up, not the top down. It's from the local, not the national 
level. This plan is about enabling and empowering local leaders, whether in government or business or civil society, to design and deliver local plans suited to local requirements using local agency uh, and local knowledge. For that is the recipe for local as well as national growth. And that bridges to my second point, which is for these plans, local plans, to stimulate growth, I think there are two key core ingredients for success. First, a supercharging in the devolution of powers, and second, uh, a supercharging uh, of the policies around skill building. So further sweeping devolution of powers, because without that, and given our highly centralised political system, those local plans will not find fruit. They will not be designed, they will not be delivered. I'm sure the two Andes will have more to say about that. And second, that focus on skills, a long-standing Achilles heel of the UK economy that's now at risk of bringing economic growth, in my judgment, to a standstill. I'm sure Alison will say more about this. This Achilles heel is very visible just at the moment in records skills deficits in every sector, in every region of the UK. We see in record levels of unfilled vacancies, 1.3 million or so across the country. We see it in the long-standing flatlining of both productivity and real pay for the last 15 years and counting. The arithmetic, the arithmetic of UK growth tells a very clear story. All of the growth in the UK since the global financial crisis has come courtesy of an expansion of the workforce rather than an improvement in the productivity of that workforce. And the bad news is that courtesy of a combo of Brexit and COVID, the workforce in the UK has actually now started contracting, reversing its pattern of the prior more than decade, perhaps around a half a million fewer people working in the workforce now than two years ago. And that means that without a rebuild in both the scale and the skills of the workforce, where is growth now to come from? How will that cost of living crisis otherwise be tempered and abated? The economics here actually are really simple, and those are they. And of course, if Devo and skills do hold the key, that begs the obvious question, should the two be stapled together? Do we need further devolution of skills and indeed of other budgets? Well, I suspect our speakers tonight will have views on all of that uh, and more Besides, so let me, uh, without further ado, join, um, turn to them, and welcome to the stage first, uh, Andy Burnham. Andy. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you so much, uh, Andy, for uh, hosting us here and all the work your team have done to make this uh, this event happen. It's quite a rare gathering of the first, second, and third cities, I'll leave you in the audience to judge which order you put them in so as not to inject uh, any note of disharmony 
into this, uh, this gathering. Thank you so much, Alison, for, for joining us uh, as well. Um, and to all of you, uh, we're really pleased to see such a, uh, a good audience uh, here tonight for something that I think maybe can give a bit of hope in, in quite uh, challenging uh, times. These are polarised times, and in these moments there are, I would say, precious few policies which both command strong majority support amongst the public and, I hope as Andy and I are demonstrating tonight, policies around which a strong cross-party consensus has the potential to form. For those simple reasons, the devolution of power out of Westminster into the English regions should be a high national priority right now. But when you add to that the fact that devolution can help achieve core national goals, such as economic growth in the regions, accelerating the pace of progress towards the 2050 net zero target, and creating a more positive, functional and unifying way of doing politics, as I think we've both shown in our respective city regions, the case for devolving more and for going further faster becomes compelling. This evening I want to share with you the shape of and the logic behind Greater Manchester's proposals to the government in the forthcoming Trailblazer negotiation, which I know align closely with those of the West Midlands. In so doing, we want to build a broad national consensus behind those proposals and if we can agree them with the government find some much needed forward momentum for the country. We are over five years into the start of English devolution proper and already there is clear evidence of the benefits it is bringing. We are speeding up the regeneration and reindustrialization of parts of the country that were most affected by the closures of the 1970s and 80s. For proof of that, you only have to look at the skyline of city centre Manchester, which has changed dramatically in the last five years, reflecting the fact that we are the fastest growing digital and tech hub in Europe. If you look at transport, public transport, after decades of decline, devolution is speeding up the reform and improvement of public transport outside of London. By the end of 2024, Greater Manchester will have integrated buses, trams and bikes in a tap-in, tap-out London-style public transport system, which will lay the foundation for a more productive economy. And we are showing that by breaking down the Whitehall silos and joining the dots between the different public services, we can mount a better response to the societal challenges we face, improve delivery and spend public money more effectively and efficiently. So for evidence of this, let me quote to you the early findings of a review funded by the Health Foundation into the first five years of health devolution in Greater Manchester. It's still subject to peer review and awaiting publication, but this is what the early findings say. Quote, Greater Manchester had better population health than expected following devolution. The benefits of devolution were apparent in the most deprived and poorer health areas, suggesting a narrowing of inequality. This improvement was primarily attributed to the high level of alignment amongst public services, across them all. And for me, this is the key thing that devolution can do that Whitehall can't. We can join the dots between all of the different, all of the different policy areas and then make it into a coherent whole that provides a better solution uh, on the ground. And that was very evident in our response to the rough sleeping crisis, which was the, the big priority that I set when I came into office. 
by getting the whole system in Greater Manchester, our 10 councils, the NHS, Greater Manchester Police, fire, the community and voluntary sector, the faith sector, everybody pointing in the same direction, pulling together in the same direction, that's when you can make some real change happen. And in that area, we've achieved a 68% reduction in the number of people sleeping rough, significantly higher than the national average. You could also look at our work to align the work programme with the adult education budget, which has succeeded in getting more people back to work, many of them longest out of the labour market. So the evidence is there, and we were pleased when the government's levelling up white paper accepted the case that we'd been making, that levelling up requires further devolution. But we do now need to see that commitment turned quickly into tangible uh, action. That's because I believe it is more than just a good thing to do. It is becoming a necessity. Less centralised countries than ours are ready, you could say more ready, to rise to 21st century challenges than we are. I foresee a risk to UK PLC if we don't devolve enough fast enough. This is certainly true of the race to net zero. It can only be won from the bottom up, not top down. And to have any hope of hitting 2050, we need to quicken the pace of change now, right now, particularly in places like cities, which will be the early adopters, proving the new technologies and building the skills base that the country will need. If you take the retrofitting challenge, we will only be able to retrofit homes at the scale and pace needed if local areas are able to join those dots and create strong, agile networks involving partners in housing, construction, energy, finance and skills. And of course, retrofitting <coughs> isn't just an answer to the climate challenge. By lowering people's energy bills, it's a very significant uh, response to the cost of living crisis too. And this brings me to the biggest missing piece in the devolution jigsaw and the single most important ask we will make as part of this trailblazer process and that is on skills and technical education. When I meet with potential investors looking to set up in our city region, the thing that they most want reassurance about is whether they will have access to the talented and skilled people they will need. There's a huge competition out there for, uh, for, for talent and they want to know whether we have enough level of control over the skills system to be able to deliver the people that they will need and also what level of influence we can give to them to shape, uh, to shape that system. We can give them some answers today but the truth is they are not as strong as they need to be and that leaves Britain at risk of losing out on potential inward investment. We are working hard to shape our system, working with our FE and HE providers and we have a strong team, skills team here tonight uh, from the Greater Manchester Combined Authority bringing these partners together. But at the moment we're dealing too much in workarounds and retrofits such as our matchmaking service for the apprenticeship levy. With more control over post-16 technical education we could build a more responsive local skills system which would be a significant boost to investment and growth. As a general rule in this negotiation, I will avoid taking the we want it because we want it approach. Instead, we will base our asks for more responsibility on the basis that we will deliver more back for the public and for UK PLC from the same investment that's already going in. Technical education is an area that Whitehall has never done well under any government. It has never been correctly prioritised in the national political debate and as the 21st century brings ever more diversified and specific demands for skills, we will be at risk if we don't change now. 
We are facing a colossal retraining challenge when it comes to moving older workers from traditional vehicle mechanical skills and construction skills to the green economy. But as things stand, we won't move fast enough. However, we have the first signs of a better, more targeted and localised skills service starting to emerge. Ever since we and other combined authority areas were handed control of the adult education budget, we have been able to focus this element of public skill spending on priority sectors and employer needs, consolidating the number and quality of providers and stripping out waste and inefficiency. The logic the government applied in devolving the adult education budget was that skills provision is better determined at a local level where it can be aligned with the local labour market. That judgment has been proven right and now is the time to apply the same logic to other parts of the skills system. So, we will be proposing three very specific things. Firstly, local control of post-19 skills and work-based learning, ensuring it has strong links to the needs of our uh, residents and the local labour market. Second, a partnership with the Department of Work and Pensions so that we can bring together skills and employment support, building on the track record of our Working Well programme and having more influence about how job centres operate in Greater Manchester. Thirdly, a partnership with the Department for Education on post-16 provisions, 16 to 19, co-commissioning courses like T-levels, making sure they deliver up both on national priorities but also on the needs of our local economy and our young people. So all of this would allow us to make a major step forward by creating a coherent Greater Manchester Technical Education Service, and that would be our intention, with involvement from partners in FE, HE and industry, moving from the current fragmented landscape of loosely connected initiatives and institutions to a system geared towards our specific needs, creating clear pathways for our residents into better futures. Another potential barrier to growth in Greater Manchester is if we don't fix transport, and more specifically, we don't address a rail industry which is not keeping pace with the change that we're seeing in our city region. This week, the census told us that Salford is the most rapidly growing city in the north, with the number of residents there growing by 15% in the last decade, Manchester not far behind with growth of 10%. But at the moment, just 20% of our residents can reach the city centre within 30 minutes on public transport. We have a plan for a London-style public transport system, but it will only be as comprehensive as it needs to be if rail gets with the programme. At present, it is in danger of being left on the platform. Our city centre rail stations are becoming very visible symbols of the problem. They are like outliers in a city of modern buildings and skyscrapers, relics of a different era. So we'll be asking the government to establish a new partnership between Greater Manchester, Network Rail and the wider rail industry to take control of our stations and make them worthy of our growing city region by unlocking investment around these assets, supporting housing growth and our wider placemaking agenda. In the second half of this decade, we want our stations to be part of our new B network bearing the same branding as our buses and trams. This partnership will also develop a new pipeline of schemes to unlock capacity on the rail network and solving the bottleneck in central Manchester, which is holding the whole of the north back when it comes to rail services. It's bedeviled us uh, for years, and what we want to do is improve that uh, commuter rail system and begin to integrate it with Metrolink through tram train technology. 
over time, we'll be asking the government and the new Great British Railways to give us more control over commuter rail and to work with us towards a fully integrated uh, London-style system, giving easy and affordable access to the whole public transport system through a daily cap on what people can spend, whether they're taking trains, buses or trams. That would be a complete game-changer for the residents of Greater Manchester. It can't be right that public transport is more expensive in some of the poorest parts of the country, but that is the reality today. But we have within our reach now uh, a move towards a very different system, which I think will build the productivity that Andy was talking about at the start. Going forward, building a revenue stream to support a reformed transport system is part of what we will also need to do. So we are open to discussing fiscal devolution as part of the trailblazer and specifically modest revenue-raising measures at the local level which can support our goal. If I could just turn to housing, the only way that true levelling up can happen is when skills, transport are linked to housing and regeneration in a coherent place-based vision. That is why the third priority ask will be for more powers over housing. We are the fastest growing city region outside of London and that fact presents another risk to our success if it's not adequately addressed. Access to decent, affordable housing. The GMCA has recently approved an initial implementation plan for the delivery of 30,000 net zero carbon social rented homes by 2038, working with partners in and beyond Greater Manchester to trial new approaches. We are looking to extend the success of our housing investment fund through new flexibilities and build on our strategic partnership with Homes England. We really need the powers and the, the borrowing permissions from government to build those 30,000 homes. But alongside them, we need to get better at improving the homes we've already got. Across the country, millions of people are in receipt of housing-related benefits, which ultimately go to private landlords who fail or refuse to keep their properties up to the decent standard. In Greater Manchester, it is estimated that between 40% and 50% of homes in the private rented sector are not at the decent standard. Just think about that, 40 to 50%. We were therefore pleased to see the government committing to extending the decent home standard to the private rented sector. And we believe we can help drive the change that they and we want to see. So we'll be proposing a housing quality pathfinder, a joint partnership to tackle new ways of improving poor quality homes without uh, creating harms for uh, vulnerable tenants. Working alongside the government's plan to in introduce the PRS property portal, we are building our own GM Good Landlord Charter to drive up standards. And we also want to uh, boost our ability to enforce against bad landlords. Specifically, we will use the Pathfinder to examine ways in which we can link housing-related benefits to the decent standard, calling time on absolute, absent, unscrupulous landlords who take from our communities but give little back. Before I finish, I just want to address an issue which for some is a block on their support for devolution. It has to be the case that with greater power comes greater accountability. And I know some in Westminster think mayors and CAs are currently not accountable enough. I can say, having been a minister and a mayor, I feel far more accountable in this job than any role that I did in Westminster with an electorate much larger than any MP, able to raise concerns with me directly, particularly over social media. In fact, I sometimes feel I'm being held to account for everything, uh, decisions not of my own making in local and national government. 
But I can see that government might be reluctant to devolve if it means they're still blamed for poor outcomes. Clearer and stronger accountability mechanisms are therefore in the interests of both sides. Both myself and the 10 council leaders of Greater Manchester are ready for real accountability, but that requires us giving real being given real responsibility too. Whitehall has to learn to let go. I spent five years in Whitehall as a minister and have now done five years in Town Hall as a mayor. And I can say from my own experience that it is Whitehall that wastes the most, taking decisions too far away from the ground on short-term initiatives that are designed to change headlines, but not much else. The hoops that Whitehall makes Town Halls jump through to access funding shows, in my view, a lack of self-awareness. And more would get done in this country if we call time on the tyranny of the bidding culture and national government learn to trust local government a little more. But in return, we should accept the same level of scrutiny that ministers and senior officials in government departments experience. So we will say, as long as we are properly responsible, our officials are ready to be subject to the scrutiny of the Public Accounts Committee, and I am ready to be subject to the scrutiny of any select committee. With accountability should come greater transparency too. So we will also be arguing for a single block grant to be agreed for a spending review period covering a set of clear functions and delivering a set of outcomes agreed between Greater Manchester and the government. Similarly, you might say, to what already is in place for Wales and Scotland. This will allow us to clarify and simplify English devolution. Everyone will be clear about who is taking which decisions, what funding has been provided, and what we have agreed to deliver in return so we can be held to account. If this can be achieved, it would reflect a growing maturity in the arrangements for English devolution and get the national-local relationship into the right place for the first time. So in conclusion, we are not asking for devolution for devolution's sake. Our case for change is that with more agency, we can be more than we are and we can return more for UK PLC. And a politics based on the unifying force of place rather than the divisions of party is what this country needs now more than ever if we are to unlock positive energy in all places and spread a new sense of possibility throughout the land. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Thank you, Andy, for saying that so clearly and compellingly. Our second speaker is Andy Street. Andy. Right, good evening everybody and first of all can I say to you Andy thank you very much for inviting us here and thank you to all of you for your interest in this. Now timing I think of this discussion is perfect not only because it's about real politics and we're moving away from all the froth of the Westminster bubble to concentrate on something really important but I do think there is something about a moment of truth for devolution and levelling up. We've been talking about it for years, probably decades, when David Cameron first became Prime Minister. He talked about rebalancing the economy. Regional policy back to the 60s, 70s, been going on for decades. But now is a moment we have to collectively decide whether we are going to jump together. Andy and my job, they both came about as a result of a belief in devolution in 2017. There's, of course, those who say it's all stalled, it's not going to happen. But the Prime Minister said very clearly, this is the defining mission of the government. We've now got to prove it. 
And I believe it is going to be proven. And part of the thanks goes to the first Andy, Andy H, because it was his time in his secondment to DLUC that actually brought about the levelling up white paper. Remember, we were waiting for it for months, and I think the truth is you locked yourself away in a garret room and provided it. Thank you very much. And, of course, we've now got the levelling up and regeneration bill. So there's a real determination to bring this about. So, Andy, I know the RSA was kept waiting for you, but thank you for what you did to get this journey along. And I, of course, like Andy B said, I was delighted that the West Midlands was named as one of the two areas to be a trailblazer for the devolution deal with government. Now, it's a lovely word, trailblazer, isn't it? We should just spend a moment thinking about it, the image that it conjures in your mind. And I don't know about you, but my image is of a chap or a woman, I should say that, shouldn't I? A chap or a woman cutting their way through the jungle to literally blaze the trail. Might be in, I don't know, the Malaysian jungle in the 1950s when we were thinking about changes in that country. That's what Trailblazer brings to my mind. But the idea is simple. We go where others have not gone before, so that others across the whole country can then follow. So the idea is simple. We're going to push for powers, for funding, for responsibilities, for trust, for levers that have not been trusted to us before. And we will, and I'll come back to this, be held accountable for how we get on on that journey. But hopefully we can then demonstrate that by trusting places, we do get a better outcome for everybody. It's a big responsibility weighing on our shoulders. But I tell you, people across the West Midlands, my team, they're seizing this with gusto and we are going to play, blaze that trail. Now, what's going to be in the deal? The answer is a number of things, as Andy B has already uh, identified. Some will be very simply about this idea of pride in place, one of the 12 levelling up missions. Very, very timely for Birmingham and the West Midlands at the moment, as we're on the verge, just three weeks away, of the Commonwealth Games. And I can tell you, there's pride welling up about that. Coventry's just been City of Culture. Pride comes there. And we can think about what places can do to instil that pride. But the heart of all of our asks will be the asks about the economy and the asks about the opportunity that there is for people in our regions to do better. Because for too long, we have not done as well as elsewhere. And the brutal fact for people from the West Midlands, we used to be able to say we were the fastest growing region outside London. For a decade, we were. But the pandemic has actually passed that crown to Manchester. It's been brutal for us and we've had a very, very tough outcome. And we've now got to think how this opportunity can actually win back some of that lost growth and how, of course, we can deal with the underlying productivity challenge that we face. So there's a number of places I could go in my remarks about how we're going to step in to that economic challenge. But I'm going to try to be focused tonight and focused particularly on skills. It's what we've been asked to do because it is genuinely fundamental to not just the opportunities for each individual. The social mobility, four of our boroughs, the four boroughs of the black country in the top, the bottom quarter in the country for social mobility. Skills is crucial to individuals there. But it's also crucial, as any economist over the last 200 years will tell you, to actually how a place performs economically. 
Why was Birmingham the richest city in the Union in the 1950s? Why did the government actively suppress growth in Birmingham in the 1960s? Because we had a brilliantly qualified workforce, we were cutting edge of innovation in mass manufacturing. Why has Boston become the richest city in a different union in 2020? Because they have the best skills in that med tech sector. Why is Singapore the most affluent country in the whole world on many measures at the moment? Because they have the best qualified workforce. So we know it is the only way to get to a high wage economy and deliver social mobility. And that's why in our first Devo deal, back to 2017, and every area of the country had a slightly different deal, ours concentrated on skills. Our second devolution deal focused very strongly in 2018 on uh, skills devolution. And of course, as Andy B said, we were able, like others, to take the adult education budget fully devolved from 2019 financial year on. And let's have a little look at how we've actually done on that. Because as others have said, this can't just be about a hope devolution. You've got to prove it's a better way of doing things. And we believe we can. So we concentrated our AEB on getting more people into better jobs, developing those high-level, high-quality skills, and frankly, moving provision to what employers told us they need. And we weren't afraid to make difficult decisions. Pre the WMCA taking this on, there were 400 providers of adult education across the West Midlands, lots of them not even based in the West Midlands. They were nationally awarded contracts. And lots of them were doing low-level skills that didn't get people into jobs, but it didn't matter, the money, money rolled on. We've now rationalised all that. We've got only 50 providers, nearly all of them are West Midlands based, and they all have to play a role in an overall strategy. Our colleges have come together uniquely, I think it's unique, correct me please if I've got this wrong, our colleges come together into one federation, our skills team then negotiates who is doing what, and the outcomes are very clear. We are now delivering high value, cutting edge courses that match employer needs, and because there's one controlling mind, we can be agile enough to jump into new areas when needed. So we were training people in HGV driving well before the crisis came across the country of where the HGV drivers were going to come from. So that's the theory. Let's have a look. Has it actually made a difference on the ground? And the answer is yes. I knew we were winning when I went along to Warsaw Colleges, Warsaw College, sorry, and their principal went through their curriculum with me. And he actually showed me how each of their courses mapped on to what we were doing in our local industrial strategy. Not every one of them, about 60%, he could say, yep, they meet the sectoral, the employer needs of the future. No surprise, that college has been rated outstanding. And then, rather more basically, when I went along to meet new recruits at the HS2 construction site, they'd come through our construction gateway, part of our scheme there, five people who'd previously been homeless, had got the skills, a new opportunity, as a result of what we were doing. And the light in their eyes about a new opportunity was really, really infectious. And the stats tell the same story. Skills has been a challenge to the West Midlands economy because, as Andy said, post-industrial economy were the right things there relevant to the future. So back in 2018, we got about 48% of our people in the total workforce trained up till <coughs> level three. Last year, that percentage was 55%. And remember, most of the workforce is still exactly the same as four years ago. So what it tells you is new people coming on the workforce had got 
the right skills. We've had thousands of people through our swap schemes. We've had thousands through our digital boot camps now become a national pioneer that's been rolled out nationwide. And just as Andy said, when you hear from inward investors why they're coming to the West Midlands, and that's an area we still lead, by the way, why we're winning more inward investment than anywhere else. It's always about the talent of the people they can recruit. Talk to Goldman Sachs, what do they say? They say, yeah, we can find, we know. We came to Birmingham as our second headquarters because we know we've got the people. So there's evidence that the devolution thus far has worked. But we're not complacent. Far more needs to be done, partly because of the economic predicament that we now find ourselves in. It's interesting what's happening. Our GDP is well down on where it was three years ago. I'm not going to hide that. But our employment rates are up. Record employment rate, record low for inactivity, both now better than the national average. That never happened before. But the problem is we've got too many people in low-paid work without the prospects of good career progression. So we know that what we're doing isn't good enough. It's not going to create this high-wage, high-productivity, high-innovation challenge. And if you think of some of the biggest sectors in the West Midlands and the transformation they're going through, think about automotive. The combustion engine is dead. It's all going to be about electric. Huge transition required. We've got to think how we're going to respond to that. So our asks in the skills part of the devolution deal, and please, I've been talking to Nadim Zahawi, the Secretary of State, about this this afternoon, and I genuinely believe that he's far-sighted and will support us in this. The first, very similar to what Andy said, is that we are looking for a clear leadership role. Who is in charge of this? We are a leadership role around technical post-16 education. The way we'll do it is build on government policy. They're talking about these LSIPs, Local Skills Improvement Panels, bit of a jargon word, but it's about employers through that specifying what they want. But then it'd be our responsibility to then decide how the whole system, whether it be colleges, private providers, some centrally funded programmes, how all of that comes together to respond to that requirement. Yes, there'll be some need for funding to be, uh, to be uh, devolved, most definitely, but the thing we want above all else is clear authority for that guiding mind. Somebody's got to work on the skills element of the economic plan for the region. The second thing we're after is a really critical overall, I'll say controlling mind again, in careers planning. The career service is pretty bust in our region. If you go to a great school, you've probably got great careers advice. I suspect lots of people in this room remember who their careers advisor was. If you go to a tough school in a tough area of the conurbation, you probably get almost nothing. You certainly don't get much if you go into an entry-level job and you're thinking about how I'm going to move forward. So our pitch to government is let us work with the people who are there already. The National Career Service, the Careers and Education Council have got particular roles, but let us glue this whole system together, just as we've done in the adult education budget. And we will also take responsibility, particularly for looking at how the people who drop out of that career system, the NEETs, and there's about 7,000 a year in the West Midlands who just drop out of that. What a start in life is that. We will take responsibility for making sure that does not happen going forward. And then the third ask 
is to work with DWP on a co-commissioning basis. We've talked about skills, but the employment support programmes go absolutely hand in glove with them. And I'm afraid this is a great case at the moment of London saying it knows better. So the big programmes like Restart, yes, we can see why they, they were there on the back of the pandemic, but they're not responsive to local need, anything but. So we will design them together with DWP in that co-creation basis. And we'll work with the new technical money we've got through the Shared Prosperity Fund. And we'll concentrate on the most difficult places first. So we're looking again, Warsaw, at a pathfinder there. So those are the three asks we're making in those areas. Asks that we think we can deliver on and that we've earned the right to ask for given what we have done so far. But they're not on their own. They have to sit in a wider package of economic asks. And so just not going to go in detail through them, but they fit in a package around business support. That's frankly got to be much better than it is. Innovation, that's why we've got the accelerator status along with Greater Manchester, and also powers over an even better performance in inward investment. It's one of our strengths. It's got to be one of our solutions. Tell me why it is that Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have deep budgets for inward investment. We and Manchester do not have any from central government at all. That is not a level playing field. That is not levelling up. And then, like Andy, we want further powers in the areas of housing and regeneration. We've done a bloody good job, if I may be slightly biased, in the whole issue of brownfield redevelopment. You can see it across particularly the most scarred areas of our post-industrial conurbation, new communities coming back to life. But we need to put that on steroids. And our proposal is around what we call a levelling up investment zone, or the corridors that are most challenged, East Birmingham through to Sandwell, and we'll be talking about principles similar to enterprise zones that have been used well in our region to deal with scale and, of course, bring all the powers and flexibilities together to focus on one place. And then just again, as Andy said, and fascinating, isn't it? We don't necessarily agree on everything, but I didn't know what he was going to say, and there's huge overlap in our asks. Net Zero was absent from the levelling up white paper. Mr Haldane, that was your omission. But I do think it's probably the second most important paragraph that's got to be in our deal. Net Zero is critical not just to the climate outcome, it's critical to our new economy. And we will be saying to government, give us the cash and the power and the responsibility over the retrofit funds. Government hasn't found a solution to do this at scale. We're lagging international competitors. We've now got active pilots in communities of the odd hundreds of people here and there where we're showing that we can do it on a consolidated, coherent basis. But we want the same sort of devolved funding there as we've had in our brownfield remediation and we know we can deliver. So, moving to a conclusion. We will be ambitious, we will be there cutting through the jungle, but we'll also be realistic. We know this isn't a one-way street with government where they just turn around to some beneficent landlord and say, have that, Andy. It's not like that. We've got to persuade them, we've got to demonstrate we'll work in partnership, and again, just as Andy B said, we're prepared to be held accountable. All the best elements of devolution so far, there was something in the deal which said, show us what you've done at a stage gate. In our housing money, we actually have to show every year what we've done. And we get the next tranche of money dependent on outcomes. And you know what? I'm up for that. That's mature. So we will be saying in our deal, we will agree the outcomes we are going to achieve with you. And you and us will assess together whether we have achieved those. And as we do, you give us progressively more cash. 
And in time, we have got to move to this notion of fiscal devolution. And he's right. That's the really big Rubicon, whether we keep asking government for money and they decide, or whether we actually control our own cash, as all advanced societies do through the taxation system. We have tiny bits in our regions at the moment. And if we demonstrate responsibility, accountability, we will be saying we should be trusted with that fiscal devolution in time. So we're confident of our asks, we're confident of our record, we're confident of our approach. I'm actually as well prepared to prophesy that the government will respond positively. Bluntly put, they need this political win. We can, we can exploit that. And I genuinely believe that the Prime Minister and some of his senior team, Michael Gove, Nadim Zahawi, Neil O'Brien, are genuinely up for it. But I'm not naive. It's not going to be an easy negotiation. But with the help of great thinkers like Andy and this organisation here, we can win this argument and we can finally begin to restore the economic leadership of regions like ours, which for too long have underperformed their potential. And with it, the lives of our citizens have just been held back from what they can achieve. That's what's at stake. Thank you. Well, thank you, Andy, for that. Another fantastically compelling setting out uh, of the issues around devolution. Uh, now, I will turn to our, uh, our final speaker uh, and responder. Um, please welcome, uh, join the stage and welcome uh, Alison Wolf. Alison. Well, it's almost impossible these days not to be in favour of devolution. And partly, of course, that's because we have people like the two Andes who are cheerleaders, poster people for it, and quite rightly so. But I thought that before coming to the specific topic of skills and devolution of skills and is it a good idea and why is it working, it was worth saying just a little bit about why we devolve. Because the reason we devolve is to get decision-making down to the level where people actually know what they want, know what's available, know what the problems are, and know how to allocate resources in a relatively efficient way. And that means empowering not just mayors, though that's a great idea, it means empowering individuals, families, organisations, and labour markets. So the first question really is always, does just getting stuff out of Whitehall, getting stuff out of Washington, Paris, Rome automatically work? And the answer is only up to a point. It's perfectly possible to devolve and end up with things being even more centralised than they were before. And I would say some of what's going on in Scotland bears that out, actually. We've devolved to Scotland, and Scotland has, for better or worse, decided to centralise some of its activities on the grounds that that's the, the right way to do it. Now, I actually think that with skills, we've devolved to the right level, and I'll say why in a, in a second. But I, I think it's also worth remembering that we do know quite a lot about what makes devolution work. Um, we, don't, we can't say automatically this is the right level, but there are three things that I think we can say. One of them I'm going to have to park, which is that really effective devolved authorities have some revenue-raising powers, and I'm sure that that's something which in the years ahead we will continue to return, we will return to. The 
The second thing is that they do need to be accountable. And one of the things that was interesting was hearing first Andy Burnham say that you felt more accountable in Manchester than you ever did in Whitehall. And that's because we do have a democratic system as well as lots of people banging on your door. And um, we do actually have lots of research evidence on this that as you might expect, um, when there is never a turnover, you find that quality plummets. But then the third thing, of course, is are people spending budgets well? And that's a much more individual thing. And I'm going to both praise and give some challenges. Why do I think that it's the, the right level? Well, with skills, you can't actually just leave it to individuals. You can't just give them a, a bit of cash and tell them to go off and find themselves an employer and suggest to the employer that the employer train them. You can't, in fact, just leave it to employers because we know that particularly with small companies, they don't know where to go. And they also worry about poaching and there are all sorts of issues, which mean that when you just try to just throw it open to, to individual and isolated people, you, you don't get effective education or skills. And in the past, in smaller societies, institutions evolved more organically and had pluses and minuses. And many people here will, after all, know that the, the RSA is, is an institution, after all. And it grew up at a time when, in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, people were concerned about that. So there were institutions like the RSA, there were institutions like city and guilds. Guilds were, were ubiquitous in the Middle Ages. So you, you need institutions, and you need institutions so people know whether something really works. We also know that if you go too far up from individuals, you end up with Whitehall. You end up with something which is too big. And having spent a large part of my life tracing how inefficient Whitehall skills policy can be, um, you, know, you feel like this is a case that's been made. It's just too far away. And every time it tries to do something new before you know where you are, you have secondary legislation, you have regulations, you have statutory guidance, you have all of this stuff with the best of intentions. So then the question is, have we devolved to the right level with, with combined authorities, mayoral combined authorities? And I think we have, although I would want to distinguish here between the skills formation that goes on in higher education at the sort of the high end, which is what a lot of the sort of you know, pharmaceutical breakthroughs will come to from, and the sort of skills that we have without defining it been talking about today. The skills which are about increasing the productivity of the workforce in an ongoing fashion. The sort of skills that individual employers or large multinationals need if they're going to come, if they're going to expand, if they're going to take the risk of, of, of investing large amounts. And I think it is right. It's not a science, but it's a, a you know, it's, it's a pretty fair conclusion that if you have something which is a fairly manageable, a bit more than a travel to work area maybe, but hopefully not by the time the mayors have got their hands on the transport system, you, you've actually got something which is big enough to generate sizable and reliable institutions and small enough that you can actually get some, some back and forth. So that's, I think, a, a real plus. I think we've done this perhaps more by accident than careful thought, but we have ended up with a genuinely correct decision to devolve skills to this level. And you've heard tonight that 
mayors are taking this up with enthusiasm and I would say the devolution of the adult skills budget has been unquestionably a success. So that's the plus side, but I then want to come to the, to the challenge. The, the argument for devolution is that it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition for success. As I said, you need to have, you need to have roughly the right unit, you need to have revenue raising powers, you need to have accountability, and you need to have really active management of the budget. And one of the things about the whole levelling up agenda and the whole ideal of levelling up is that you're empowering places not just to receive stuff, we've been sending stuff down for a long time, but that you empower places to attract employers actively, to respond actively to opportunities, to do things differently from the place down the road rather than being given the same rolled out skills programs, the same rolled out transport approach, the same rolled out, I would say, DWP programs too. And that's where I think there is still more that could be done. On the one hand, you have very reasonably, you have both, both Andy's saying, we don't have enough control, we want more money, we want more budgets. I would like to set you some challenges as well with the budgets that you've got and, and, and what you've partly done with them. I think the first challenge is, are you sure that you are avoiding the mini Whitehall trap? Is it you may be the right place to hold the budget, but does that mean you need to have a tight plan for your whole area? Should it be the MCA, which is always empowered, or should it be individual colleges, which are more empowered? And, for example, I, I say this in the context of the, the, the recent Local Skills Improvement Plan initiative, which has sort of been interpreted as though it was a sort of a, a, a kind of mini manpower planning exercise for each locality, which was not the idea at all. The idea was to create a mechanism which essentially put providers and employers in the same room and got them to talk to each other in a very regular way. And that's now statutory. And I think it's working, actually. But one of the things that was very interesting when it was going through as legislation through Parliament was that every authority and, and sort of organised set of organisations in the country wanted to have their signature on it. The LEP should have a signature. Every single local authority should have a signature on it. What about making sure that every major health trust is actually actively involved? And um, the MCAs do have a formal role, although I would venture to note that you know it was inconceivable that you wouldn't be involved anyway since you guys have the money so I'm not really sure why you were so determined to get yourselves into an amendment in Parliament but I think that there is a sort of a slight warning here it's very easy having said the layer above is too big and doesn't know what it's doing to be convinced that the layer you're at knows everything so I do just want to say please don't fall into that trap um, the second challenge is actually, why have you been so cautious with the money so far? Actually, I think you could have made more changes than you did. You could have torn up this payment by qualification. You started off doing a couple of great things. I think boot camps were wonderful. And I, they're also now at risk of becoming in, you know, encrusted with regulation. But in many ways, I feel you, know, you, you actually had far more power than you seem to have, than you seem to have 
really believed you did? Tear up the whole way it's organised. Don't, don't continue to roll out not merely payment by qualifications, but even, even the centrally set and totally unrealistic prices that you've got. And the third challenge is about the, the active response. And again, I think this is quite particularly with skills. The point about skills is they can't be just top down. They have to be a, an ongoing, active, ever-changing process of responding to changing labour markets, changing needs, people coming forward, people needing to retrain. It has to be a constant process. And in that process, there are three you know, this is the, there are there are three sets of people or three yeah three three players. There are the individuals who want to learn more, and it's normally assumed that they will do their bit, not least by just putting in the effort, sometimes by paying fees. There's the community, which is what the mayors represent. You have a responsibility for the for the area, but there is also the active engagement of employers and companies and the people who actually are coming. And I, th I feel that they are just as good as everybody else of coming in and saying, give us this, give us that, give us the third thing. If levelling up is going to really work and if areas are going to respond actively, they also have to find ways of making their employers respond actively. And so the, the final challenge that I would like to throw out to you is... You're now at the level where the labour market really works. You're at the level where you've got travel to work. You've got people coming to you and saying, we want this. Now over to you to do what Whitehall has never managed to do successfully, which is to find a way of creating partnerships in which employers see that as something to which they actively contribute, rather than just coming and saying, more please, I want some more. We can all do that, and I would give you career education if I could. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alison, thank you for that. Brilliant as ever. And impromptu, she didn't know what was going to be mm. said, um, which made it all the more impressive. But actually, start while you're thinking about your questions in the room and online. I thought I might just put back to, to the two Andys initially. Um, Alison's good question, which is how to avoid, I think you call it the mini Whitehall trap. Mm. Yeah. Actually, you want to kick us off, Andy, on that one? Well, I think there's no, I understand what you're saying, Alison, but there's no real danger of it, and I'm sure Andy will know this, because we have 10, I have 10 leaders who have got views, and um, they, 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 are the, they are the mini Whitehall, because they, they, they are the greatest manager combined authority. And things, if I were to come out and say, here's my view, and this is it, you know, get on with it, well, what would happen, Andy, if we did that? It, 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 it wouldn't not, last long. It tends not to go very well <laughs> if, we, if we try that. Um, and obviously the GMCA, the WMCA, are different from the GLA. So I just need to say that in this audience. We are not that type of entity that sits above. You know, we, we are built from the bottom up. And I think that is our great strength, to be honest, because it allows us to move as one as a whole system, if we can all agree. The 10 councils, the, the GMCA all of the other public bodies, you know, linked into um, to our communities. You know, we have, you know, a homelessness programme board that has people with lived experience on it, you know. It, actually, we do work, I take the, 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 the risk is there, but we do work quite hard to, um, to, to counteract it, to make sure that we've got voices up and down the system. And I'll just, I will just finish on this point in terms of, you know, what is the difference for me having 
been Secretary of State for Health and then been Mayor of Greater Manchester, where I have a health responsibility in both roles. In Whitehall, you can only see numbers, not names. In our roles, you can see names, not numbers. And that is, honestly, a world of difference in terms of how you build solutions uh, from that level. And that's all true. I'll just add one other thing. Um, and I'm sure we are guilty of not doing it as well as I am going to tell you we do. And it's a fair <laughs> challenge, Alison. But the way we've tried to go about this is co-creation with yep. the very people who deliver. So my little story about the colleges coming yep. together and actually taking a role in the uh, formulation of the answer, not just being a remote delivery agent, I think is some proof of that. Uh, and we try to do that in everything. And obviously we are very, very small and tiny. Mm. And we've got to keep the modesty that goes with that. But it's a fair challenge. It is a fair challenge. And we go to a question uh, online first, actually, before we go uh, uh, in the room. Uh, it's a question from Laura. Um, and it's a question about how do we hold employers to account for the, the quality, tenure, and progression in their careers? How do we make the skills bit central at the business level, too? Mm -hmm. I might start with Andy on that, given your... Well, it's very difficult with every employer, but I will tell you about a few of our really big employers. Mm. So if you look at where the most jobs have been created in the West Midlands in the last uh, six months, the two organisations have been HS2 and the Commonwealth Games. 35,000 jobs in the Commonwealth Games. Now, OK, they're not a typical employer, but we got in right at the beginning to make it really clear what the criteria were going to be. Mm. And we have a formal role in the training progression there. And actually with HS2, for ex example, we examine with them the proportion of people who have been provided locally and we actually think about what infrastructure is needed to be put in place for them to be able to fulfil that objective. So I think we've got two pretty good examples we've tried to... I'm conscious both of them are ultimately publicly funded bodies. And so I'm going to let Mr B answer the privately funded bodies. <laughs> uh, it's a difficult one, given the, um, the landscape that we're working in. As I mentioned my skills team are, are here tonight, and Gemma, who runs it, is also working in central government as well. So we, you know, we are trying to kind of work to build this uh, with, with colleagues here as well. I mean, I asked the team to create something what I called a UCAS system for apprenticeships when I came into office. You know, give young people in Greater Manchester who are not on the university route a line of sight into the modern GM economy because, in truth, their parents, and I would include myself in this, don't fully know what the type of jobs are out there. And that system is called GMAX, the Greater Manchester Apprenticeships and Careers Service. The, the kind of lev leverage, if you like, is I wouldn't want anything on there that's employers where they get young people right to the end of an apprenticeship and they pull the rug. And, you know, that, that, there's got to be a quality assurance then coming with who's, who's on there. And broader answer to the question is... We have brought through something called the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter, um, which is broader than uh, training and education. It deals with zero hours, real living wage, um, gender pay gap, flexible, all of those things. And we are now, as a city region, going to link that to public procurement. So the franchising process that's underway now with regard to buses going under public control, that is linked directly to the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. And all public procurement is moving in that direction as well. So that is, I think, I mean, these are sort of, we're doing what we can with what we've got. 
But I think if we had more direct control, the conditionality would get stronger, basically. Terrific. Alison, on this question about um, the role of companies and employees in that. Yeah, um, I think it's a difficult one, and it's not one you can, can sort of change overnight. I mean, one of the things that has happened in this country is that employers have become less and less involved in, 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 in training it. And, and again, you know, it's always very easy to say oh, they do it much better in Germany, they do it much better in Switzerland, and that's also partly to do with the structure of the economy and structured places. But I, I do think it also comes back to the importance of devolution because if very little the, if there's very little power locally there's also very little power to create and maintain these these often very informal contacts that make people feel that they belong to the area and they have obligations to the area and i do think that that the countries that do the best job to, in the area that i know best which is training and skills are the ones where there are lots and lots of of ongoing things that, 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 that tie an employer into the locality and mean that if they aren't doing things, they are likely to be seen not to be doing things and shamed for not doing things. So I don't think it's that the average Swiss employer is born with a heart of gold and the average English employer is born sort of, you know, <laughs> determined to wring the last penny out of the system. But I do think that one of the things that has happened in this country in the last 50 years is that that, that very dense web of, of, of sort of involvement has, has atrophied. And I think in that sense, again, devolution is, is a necessary but not sufficient thing. Yeah. And, I, and I think one of the, to add to your list, I think one of the things that, that you guys need to do is to be consciously aware of the need to build that up again. Mm, that's right. I think it's a very important point. A couple of questions in the, in the room. Uh, we'll try and keep them short because time is short. And, and I know there's um, news outside the room. Um, <laughs> let's keep the questions what's in the room, though, which is about Devo, if possible. I hope that doesn't pop your balloon. Let's start here. Very quickly, my name is Lolita Jackson, past RSA US chair. I worked for the mayor of New York City for 15 years and worked for both of your cities. And my question is, we've talked a lot about the UK. It's a global organization, so I wanted to ask what learnings that you have from city, global cities as far as cautionary tales and also the powers that they have. So as you know, New York City has a very powerful mayor system. So I'm just curious to see what you think about that. I'd like to, uh, one more question, then you can uh, take your pick. Uh, we'll go, I think we'll go there, if that's okay. Apologies, I'll try to you about time. Keith Hosfall, fellow from the West Midlands. Um, I grew up over the hill from, from Andy B over in Halifax in, in, in Yorkshire. I then moved down to Andy S. Uh, and it seemed to me that we had uh, those three areas, West Yorkshire, Manchester, and the West Midlands, I watched decline as mills closed down, industry closed down, companies moved out. And, and one of the areas that seems to me that's not been discussed tonight, and it's, uh, and it's very strong in both Manchester and uh, particularly in Birmingham, is other creative economies. And, it, and it's an area that's in, increasingly part of our uh, national and regional um, economies. And, and it's been, it seems to me, and, and there's not been a single mention tonight of that. I know Andy, you and I have talked about this in the past. And I just wondered what the panel's view, because the problem is that national government doesn't support the training for the creative economies. It's the first thing to be cut, so the arts and everything else. And, and it seems to me, we've talked a lot about uh, joined up thinking, 
and there's a lot of joined up thinking that's not happening in that area. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Topic the RSA is working on actively. Very good. Who wants to take that one? I don't mind going first. So Lolita's question, what do I take from US and I would actually say Canadian cities, because my current view is that the Canadians are better th than the US at this, is the machine that they establish around innovation, which is born out of their universities, mm -hmm. the venture capital industry, and also the real estate industry. We are absolute amateurs at it compared to what I've seen recently in Toronto, which is probably the world leader. We have got one hell of a lot to learn from them in something that will generate high income city regions in the future. To your question, Keith, uh, fair cop, but I don't think we've talked about many sectors tonight. But the point I would make is that the creative sector is probably almost the very best example of the argument that goes you build the capability base and you use that then to attract the relatively footloose talent. And that is, we've got a little way behind Manchester on this, but that, as you know, is exactly the approach and it's yeah. why we've actually taken on directly a role actually stimulating the, uh, some provision for skill development for the creative sector. So uh, uh, yeah, you are absolutely right that it's a, a case study in this sort of magnet effect, really. Andy, you and I were discussing this last week, actually. Pardon? You and I were discussing this just last yeah, week. Yeah, I mean, you, you are absolutely right to, to stress the um, kind of critical importance of the creative economy, particularly to, to us. And it's, it's important not just because of the jobs that it creates, it's the, the feeling, the identity that it gives the city. I mean, I think you know, we can say that we are pretty strong in this, uh, in this uh, area. We, we were once known as the, um, the home of 24-hour party people. We're trying to win that back from 10 Downing Street. But, you know, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let you know how we get on with that. But um, you know, people come to Manchester for a, a good time. You know, good, you know, and that is, and we, the 10 councils invest in culture, the Manchester International Festival, the, um, the events that happen. And it, you know, it's absolutely crucial to us. And, Although I just wish schools weren't off limits in this country. Kind of we're kind of been told that pre-16 is kind of off limits, really, yeah, haven't we? That's right, Andy? that's right. And I don't know what Alison's views are on this, but I go back to when I was shadow education in 2010 when Alison was doing <laughs> her very famous report. I just think it was a, a crying shame that this country sent a message at that point that creative subjects at school were worth less than, than other subjects. This is an area that we excel in as a country. We are world leaders in this stuff. Why are, we, why, are we doing, why are we sending a message to young people who are talented creatively that somehow those skills, are, they're not worth less. This is, this is something that we've got to change, I think. We've got to build an argument around it. But the cities are still, are still investing in it. You know, we, our 10 do invest in culture way above what you would expect them to. And I think true of Liverpool, certainly true of Tracy Braben in West Yorkshire, who's prioritizing culture and creativity. So there is hope, I, I think. In terms of what we learned, I was so lucky that Michael Bloomberg invited us. Did you go on that, Andy, as well? Yeah, the City yeah. Leadership Programme. And we got admitted to the club of US mayors you know, very early on, and we kind of made some connections. I'll be going to Austin next year for South by Southwest, actually on that theme of building those uh, music city connections. Um, they are capable themselves individually, but I love the way they networked. And I think one thing we learned, and I hope you feel the same, Andy, is that the M10 
actually works much more collaboratively than it, than it does competitively. There are some times where we will be competing for something. But to be honest with you, we collaborate much more than we, than we compete. So you'll be voting for Birmingham for GBR HQ then? Crew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was all going so well. But, this, but uh, the point being, we don't really like these competitive no, processes. No, the what was said about bidding earlier on is right. We yeah, would rather yeah. the government just said, OK, yeah. it's going to be X or yeah. Y. You know, when they made us bid for Channel 4, we all wasted a lot of time and energy over that, didn't we? And, uh, you know, only one winner, you know. So the, bid, the bidding culture is something we all feel very, very frustrated with. And the US mayors, I think, work as a very strong network of, of cities, which was something we learned. I'm going to take one more uh, question on, online, I'm afraid. Uh, actually, one, one online and one in the room, and we'll try and make them super quick as well, because time is pretty much uh, up. Uh, and one online is about, um, you'll like this, you two. Um, it's fine if the two Andys are doing it, um, but what about everyone else? What about the talent elsewhere across the country to make a success locally? I want to start with Alison on that one, actually. Um, well, it's true that not everybody can be top, and it would be silly to pretend that nobody ever needs to rise or fall or anything of the sort, but I do actually believe that there is tremendous potential for pretty much every part of this country, and I really do. Um, you can see it in the places that, 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 that there are things which you can't change. If you've got a very isolated place which has no decent roads, I mean, honestly, it's not going to become the centre of creative success in the world. I mean, you know, there are some obvious things. But I, I actually believe very strongly that almost everywhere can become a centre for something where it's just better than almost everybody else. I really do believe yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and in order to do that, they need the power to do it. Yeah. And one of the problems that I think we've partly had in the past, and this has been partly self-inflicted, is that everybody seems to want to succeed at the same thing. Everybody wants to be in financial services. Everybody wants to be in coding. Everybody wants to be whatever. That, that's not the way to succeed. <laughs> so it is about having something which is special and local and then what is interesting about people is that if you actually create a team that wants to do something i don't know how many people here have ever worked in a startup it doesn't even need to be a commercial startup but when you actually get something going as you guys must have done they were startups yeah That's they right. were startups right. it is simply the yeah. most exciting thing in yeah. the world and people produce at a level which you wouldn't expect to be possible so yes it's some things are easier if you're Manchester or if you're the West Midlands. Some things are harder, actually. But I, I think very much that what you need is to empower people to, to have something of that startup culture and give them what that, what that involves. Not everybody will, but I honestly believe that almost everybody could. Fantastic. And we go down the line and then wrap things okay, up. Okay, so just very briefly, I think it's encouraging. More areas of the country are moving to a mayoral model. Mm. Uh, the invitation is there from government more to come forward. All the mood music is many will, so that's good. And even since we've been doing the job, we've been joined. We were the M, whatever we were, M5, 6, 7, 8, yeah. 9, 10. You know, yeah. the number's growing. That's good. Yeah. But it does come back to this trailblazer word. Um, uh, we, it's very clear, and we say this to our colleagues, we will try to win some ground for others yeah. to share. Yeah. Uh, this is not all about doing it just for ourselves. Very good. Andy, to close. I, I think there are some amazing things happening 
not just in the, the mayoral combined authority areas, I think all over the country, you know, Preston have done some really interesting work around community wealth building. You know, you can look right around the country and you see quite a lot of innovation in, mm. in local government. And I want to just to return, if I could, to that point about the sort of almost the slightly kind of sneering out of Westminster Outlet or little local government. You know, it, it's, it's not entitled to hold that, that sort of attitude, in my view. You know, the, the things that they've done in the last 10 years dealing with kind of diminishing budgets and trying to hold things together, there's heroic things have been done out in, in local, local areas and for, for very little thanks or little spotlight. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's got to be recognised. The capability of places is, is pretty huge, really. And I've been, you know, I'm a convert, you know, because I came out and had Westminster ways and I kind of learned and understood more uh, of what is achieved uh, at the local level. And I've you know, just got huge, uh, huge respect for it. I think Alison is right. There was a time when you could associate a town in this country with a, an industry, couldn't mm. you? you, know, you in our part of the world, Warrington was wire and chemicals, and St. Helens was glass, mm. and Lee, where I was the MP, was coal and cotton. You know. And I just think, I don't see why we can't get that association back yeah, with kind yeah, of, you know, and it is maybe coming back, uh, coming back to a degree. But I, I, um, that's the optimistic thing. I, I personally feel, I remember being on that Bloomberg course, and somebody stood up and said, the 19th century was the century of empire, the 20th century was the century of national government, the 21st is going to be the century of the city. And we are slow to this game in this country. Yeah, and true. we are going to miss out big time if we don't realise this. Change in the future is going to be more driven bottom-up than it is imposed top-down. And the places that will succeed the most will be, will be the network places where the, kind of the, the mayor and the, the city region authority is networked with the universities, with the businesses big and small, with the community and voluntary sector, and it's building an energy from the bottom up. Those will be the best places to live around the world. And I, we are at risk of kind of not being enough in that game. And we're kind of getting to it too tentatively, in my view. That's why we're going to go through this trailblazer, go at it more decisively, more quickly. And I think Alison made a good point. Scotland has gone in the wrong direction, no, I think in my view. They've <laughs> sort of hoovered agency up from the cities and the localities. Mm. And I don't think that is, they are in the wrong place, I think, when you look at the 21st century economy, driving to net zero. That, won't be, that will only be done by hearts and minds and people working together from the bottom up. And you know, those will be the places, as with culture, the talent will go to those places. If, you, if it's a competition for talent, you'll go to the places that are vibrant politically and in a civic sense, but also with a great culture scene and doing good things on homelessness. Those are the places that people will want uh, to live. And the big risk for the UK is not that we devolve, but we don't do it fast enough, is, is what I would, I would say. Uh, and actually trust people in these places, these proud towns of our country. The talent is there, the belief in those places is there. And start with place, because everyone cares about the place they live in. That is a unifying force, whatever people vote at elections. Kind of go with something that unifies us rather than something that divides us, which was what Westminster starts with. And I just think that's, that's the mindset shift we need we need in this country and I hope cross party you've felt that tonight that we are we do disagree on different things but we are very much aligned aligned on this we see a way forward for our country for what we've said to you tonight and we hope you do too listen that's a great way to uh, to close what has been an absolutely fantastic discussion I mean it really has um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming along in the room uh, online for asking all those questions. I apologise for not getting to more of you uh, with 
the answers. There'll be another occasion, uh, I know. Um, and of course, a huge thank in particular to our panelists this evening. Um, what a refreshing change it makes. One, to be able to discuss issues in cross-party terms with such uh, commonality of cause and purpose. And two, um, particularly in these times, a sense of can-do and optimism from all of our speakers tonight about un unlocking the potential in people and in places, which I think we'd all agree uh, is a very welcome antidote to our daily diet of other stuff. Uh, so please join me uh, in thanking hugely tonight's fantastic panel and a fantastic conversation. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.